And as we were singing there, uh, praise to the Lord the Almighty, the song that we sang before the dismissal of the children, you never know who's learning what in a worship service. I learned something today. I have forever sung this song as, O my soul, praise him, for he is thy help and salvation, just because I thought I knew the song. But it doesn't say that, does it? Class, looking at the bulletin now at the song, it says, O my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. And that's something a little different, isn't it? He is our help. Of course he is. And we seek him all the time to be our help. It's a very different thing to say that he is our health. And so just a freebie here, this is not the sermon. (laughs) You know him as your help, but do you know him as your health? I'm going to be reflecting on that all week. And we're going to take two weeks with the rest of Romans 7 here. The passage Allison read from verse 7 to verse 25 is the rest of Romans 7. We started Romans 7 last week. We're going to do it in a part one, part two fashion. Obviously, as you read along with her, this is a big cut of text, but that's because it's biographical. And it's not just biographical for Paul, but also for each one of us. The sermon title is The Struggle is Real, part one. And Paul gives us the reason why the struggle is real, that when he says that that this is a law, he, he means this is set. It's a set thing that even when I know better and I want to do right, I find the desire, the competing desire, and I don't find this 100% of the time, uh, but enough times I do, I want to do right, I know what's better, but the desire for what isn't right keeps showing up in me, and it keeps, it keeps acting to be, to be acted upon, asking to be acted upon. You ever had a friend, or maybe this describes you, If you tell him to do it, he won't do it. You ever had somebody like that? Or if you tell him, thank you. (laughs) If you tell him not to do that, he's going to do it. Well, what's going on in that kind of dynamic? Well, it could be that your friend is just a contrarian and likes to be difficult and really doesn't mean any harm by it. A contrarian can be playful. But being a contrarian, being contrarian is really the nature of sin. I mean, in a word, that's how sin works. And what Paul is describing biographically, he's sort of moved from teaching and now it's more of a confessing. Uh, this, is, this is biographical at the end of all this, the rest of, of chapter 7, verse 7 through tw- verse 25. He's describing the working of the nature of of sin. Why is it when we, when we recognize that, that God has a design and God has a purpose and he, and, he, and he has some things he's set, there's some things that we cannot not know. We talked about this in, in Romans 2 about the conscience. The conscience recognizes the moral order of the universe. We deny it in our rebellion, but we still recognize it's there. And so why is it when God tells us what to do, we find the want to in us we find the recognition that that's good and right, and if I do it that way, things will likely go better for me. But we also find the don't want to right beside it. 
And the flip side is also true. Why is it when we're told not to do something, that becomes the very thing that we want to do? And the reason is because this is the nature of sin. Sin is contrarian to its core. I'll give you a lot of examples of this. Uh, why? So, and and there's, it's always, it's, it's particularly true of, of evangelicals. We will protect our children, but we will often overprotect our children. And why is it when you overprotect a child, do you make him more curious about the thing that you're actually trying to protect him from or prevent from breaking out in his life? It doesn't happen 100% of the time, but enough times it does. We've all seen that dynamic. Or why, when you uh, keep it among children, uh, when you overcorrect a child, when you shame that child for their fault, why does that chase them back to the fault instead of away from it? Well, there's something fundamentally human going on. There's a central problem that Paul is zeroing in on here, and it is, how come the law creates more sin than it fixes? And the answer he gives is that it's actually not the law doing that. He says in verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. It's not that the law creates more sin than it fixes. It's that our sin reacts to the law. And, and it's, it's kind of an acidic reaction, if you want to put it in a, in a picture. It's, it's an acidic kind of reaction. And if you, if you feel about that, I mean, if you look at this passage and you go, you know, I just wish the Lord would have never given the law in the first place. Well, how else was he to convey our sinfulness to us in real time? Because we weren't going to confront ourselves. In fact, we like the darkness so much that uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, quoting the Old Testament, says there's no one righteous, not even one. You have to have sin to have grace. We've established that in Romans. But you have to have law to know your sin. Now, as we get into this today and on into next Sunday, the same text next Sunday, you need to know that there is a debate in biblical scholarship over this passage. <clears throat> it's a very famous debate. And the debate is over whether Paul is actually talking about himself here, <clears throat> excuse me, or he's moving into a third person kind of persona and talking about somebody who's really still a slave to sin. And there's all this scholarship that goes back and forth, and you may puzzle to hear that. Why would anyone think Paul is adopting a third person persona here when he talks about himself? Well, the reason is because it can be very hard to reconcile how it is Paul talks about not being captive to sin anymore, which he talks about in chapter 6, the text we were in earlier. And yet he says here, like in verse 19, for instance, <laughs> I don't do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And one interpretive way people have of dealing with this is to conclude, well, Paul, see, Paul isn't actually talking about himself here. He's taking on the persona of, of someone who's unredeemed, who's still a slave to sin, and he's showing us what it's really like and why that person needs to come to Christ and, and find genuine freedom. Because... Uh, the person who takes that view will say, well, you know, verse 19, I mean, that's not the experience of a believer. That's the experience of an unbeliever. Or they'll look at verse 21 and they'll say, you know, uh, it's, it's an unbeliever who keeps trying to make themselves better, but they can't. In Christ, we can and we do make ourselves better. 
And this is true to a point. I mean, the reason there's a debate between Bible-loving, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, following people is because uh, that that particular viewpoint, I don't take it that this is a third-person kind of treatment. I, I take it Paul's describing himself here. It's true to a point that we do have resources in Christ and that we don't have to do the thing that we hate. We, we know that there's tension here. But what Paul's describing in this passage is, is also our problem. The struggle is real for redeemed people also, especially for redeemed people when you think this out because we've been made aware of our hearts in ways unbelievers have not. So here's where we are in chapter 7. We've come from chapter 6 where we're told we're no longer slaves to sin, no longer owned by that, we no longer have to live in that uh, domain, uh, that that being ruled by our our passions and such, that that because of what, what Jesus has accomplished for us, as Ron was marvelously exhorting us to uh, in his charge to the congregation, It's about Jesus' finished work on our behalf, his finished work that's ongoing in a way that that we understand how that that works. We're slaves to righteousness now, and when we were talking about the language of slavery back in chapter 6, that that's an awkward language for modern hearers, but it just means it's about our, our being owned by God and our owning his ownership of us in Christ. But when you come from that teaching in chapter 6, what happens is, you may think, well, uh, okay, uh, if, if, if I'm a slave to righteousness, if I'm a slave to obedience, if, if, if the point of life now is to own God's ownership of me in Jesus, then that's what I'm going to do. I'll be nothing but righteous from now on. I'm supposed to own God's ownership of me, and boy, I will. And so fully, I'll never again struggle with any draw to sin. Paul anticipates this with chapter 7, and he cautions us with chapter 7, we still don't know our own hearts like God does. Now, the good thing in all this is that God is for us. In fact, uh, we'll get there eventually, but chapter 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 31 in chapter 8, famous words, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have a lot going for us. But what we find is that our old self, the sin nature we inherited from Adam, this is language from chapter 6, our old self doesn't die easily. We're actually more evil than we know. And Paul is showing us this in Romans chapter 7. And not to discourage us. If you feel discouragement reading this passage, it's probably because you tend towards self-righteousness. It's probably because you want to think you can overcome yourself by just doing more good. You can overcome yourself by being righter, by being truer. If I just do well enough, long enough, I'll get better and better in every way. And you know what? You will get better. Grace is not opposed to effort and improvement and growing. There is the practice of grace. There is putting grace to work. But self-righteousness in earnest is just a better kind of lostness. 
And Paul knew what he was talking about on this from his own experience. He takes us inside himself, inside ourselves. He tried for so long to be good enough for God. Let me give you the two tracks that these two sermons today and next week are going to run on. We're going to just focus on two big ideas. We have a lot of detail in here, but it's, it's, it's kind of layered on top of itself. It's all saying essentially the same thing, this, this, this inner conflict that, that, that we feel. And so one main point, one main takeaway today, and then one more next week that will be similarly themed to today, but, but coming at it a little bit differently. So today, I want to talk with you about when being good isn't good enough, don't despair. That's our big takeaway today. That's what we'll talk about. And next Sunday, we'll come back to this very same passage. When being good isn't good enough, don't extinguish your desires. Your desires really aren't the problem. Okay? Now, when I say being good isn't good enough, I'm trying to harness all this that Paul says through this chapter about this, what I'm calling this acidic reaction in us to the better direction of God for life and living. So two takeaways from Romans 7, 7 to 25. One today, one next week we return to this passage today. When being good isn't good enough, don't despair. Why? Because we have a gospel. Because God really is for us. Because there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. When you see your sin ongoing, when you see your draw to sin still in you, don't despair over that. And the next week, when being good isn't good enough, don't extinguish your desires. That's Buddhist. That's not Christian. Desire is something that, that God fits us with. And, and even though it can, can be misdirected and go wrong, desire is, is part of, of human standard equipment. To deny it is to deny something basic uh, to the design of God for us. So today, when being good isn't good enough, don't despair. I don't think anybody else could have written what we uh, are reading this morning, verses 7 through 25 in Romans 7, than an old redeemed Pharisee. And if you are like me, an old redeemed Pharisee, if you've had a religious upbringing, if you've been around the church all your life, then you, you know this dynamic if, if you're honest. Remember that place, it's in Philippians, where Paul writes about what an incredible Jew he was? Philippians 3, you can go back and read it later. In the shame-honor culture he lived in, he lived in a shame-honor culture, pious Jewish man, nothing about his external conduct shamed him. Paul was righteous as Jewish people counted righteousness. He was the epitome of it. That's what caused him to oppose the church with such uh, vehemence and anger and aggression, leading people off to prison, uh, signing off uh, death warrants, because he was so zealous for the law and that the God of Israel be worshiped as the God of Israel through the medium of the Mosaic law. And he could not abide this Christian sect 
as it came into existence. He, he thought this was a complete and utter aberration. And so Paul, there was nothing about his external conduct that shamed him. What he says to us in Philippians 3 is that he was honored for self-righteousness. But then he meets Christ. And what does he come to understand? He comes to understand all that scripture he knew in a new way because now he comes to see his self-righteousness condemned him before God as much as his unrighteousness did. And that's a newsflash for Paul. That's a revelation. Because Paul thought self-righteousness was the point. Paul thought the point was being good enough. And then he comes to realize he's not good enough. And how does he see this? This is what's fascinating. He sees this by actually looking at the law, his revelation from God, his, what he had from God. What Paul comes to see is verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And we say, well, how so? What did you see? What he saw is the law doesn't just confront our loudest sins. It doesn't just address the external person. It addresses our quiet sins as well. It gets into the heart. So I've been telling you all through Romans that the law tells us we're sinners. The law is like a taxonomy of sin species, you know, genus, species, family, all that. The law is like a periodic table of human element. The law of Moses names sin, it classifies it, it exposes us in it. Christian teaching that's faithful to the Bible tells us we're sinners. The gospel, you've often heard said, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. In that, the gospel tells us we are not good enough and will never be good enough for God. So we don't know grace without knowing sin. But the doctrine of grace does more than just convey a fact to us about ourselves, that we're sinful. The law, as well as the gospel, does this, shows us that our sin hides up in our hearts out of view of ourselves. As we've got these loud sins, we've got these obvious sins, we've also got these sins that are tucked away. And the, and, and the way Paul gets to this is he employs the idea of coveting. We're coming to it. This week I was uh, blowing, uh, I had caused to think about this just this week because I was um, blowing leaves off the, the entryway to our, our house and uh, had the blower there and, and there, we've got this little entryway and it's kind of arched up and then you go through the front door and the front doors are pretty tall and, and so I had not looked up and I look up and there's uh, way up in the corner above our front door in the arch there's this there's this pretty good sized wasps nest and all these wasps are swarming around it and uh, I hadn't noticed it there and the function of the law is not to, to just show you what's obviously in front of your face but also to show us that there's as it were there's this sin nest up in my heart that I may not always see we trip over our loudest sins. They're right in front of our faces. This is the hold me accountable for that. I've got a, a, a dirty mouth. I've got a, a wandering eye. I've, I, I'm, I, my temper is, is uh, too, too easily uh, lit. I want you to hold me accountable for these things that I, I know are wrong about, about myself. But then there are these quieter sins too, like coveting. Verses 7 and 8, the stinger on coveting when you realize this is nested way up in your heart. Paul 
draws upon this, verses 7 and 8, and it's a perfect example to draw upon. What then shall we say, verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, remember what he said in verse 5? The law aroused these passions in me because it names them. It says, don't go there, don't do this, do this, not the other. He says, if it had not been for the law, verse 7, I would have not known sin, for I would have not known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, because sin is a power. It's, it, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Coveting got Paul. Now, where does coveting show up in the Old Testament? The Ten Commandments, right? Paul knew the Ten Commandments cold. The guy's a Pharisee. He's got the Ten Commandments cold. And as far as external order by the Ten Commandments, this triumphant Pharisee saw himself doing pretty well when he measured himself against the Ten Commandments, except his goodness turned out not to be good enough when he got to number 10. Do not covet is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet uh, your, your neighbor's stuff. Don't con- covet your neighbor's spouse. Why did coveting bring a good enough guy up short? Because coveting is almost exclusively a thing that goes on in the heart. It's not a loud sin, like adultery. I mean, nobody is unaware when they're committing adultery. Hey, you're not my wife, you know. Nobody's unaware of that. It's a loud sin in that it is obvious when it is happening. But coveting, coveting is a quiet sin. It seems so normal. Nobody sees it there in your heart but God. And quiet sins like that one, and there are plenty others, these aren't driven from us by our trying harder to do better. And despairing over them is no good either. The quiet sins lodged up in our hearts, what do they tell us? They tell us we are more evil than we even know. I've got sins I can't get to. We've got sins we can't get to. God says, don't do that. Don't covet. And I go, oh, okay, I'm not coveting. But then I am. And maybe not always with this, you know, sort of impunity, this... Uh, High-handed, high-minded. Paul says down in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my, in my inner being. I, in other words, I know what's right. I know what I want to do. Uh, I want to render to God what's right, but I struggle too. For Paul, it was coveting. He says, verse 8, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. All of this is bouncing around in him. Coveting is not something Paul pulled out of the air as an example for us here. It's something he pulled from himself. Our sin is not always loud. Most of the time, it's quiet. And because this is true, we don't need just mere self-improvement. We need renovation. We don't need just behavior modification or some strategy for self-salvation. All kinds, verse 8, of covetousness. That includes a lot. Again, this is our acidic reaction to what God wants, not just 
from us, but also what he wants for us. The law isn't bad and that it encoded what God wanted for and from his people. Sin is what's bad. And sin plays off the law like a a backboard. And and sin in us as inheritors of Adam of old, every every human being, it's it's like we look great on the outside. Think of it like a garden. You got this garden spot, it's got all these decorative rocks and it looks great and it's well kept. But you pull those rocks over and you got all these bugs under there. Uh, there's a um, podcast I was listening to uh, this week and she was uh, interviewing a philosopher named, again, I'm from Alabama, so pardon the pronunciation, but it's, it's Alain de Botton, I think. That's not bad for a guy from Alabama. And uh, he's written about love, as philosophers tend to do. But he was saying the advice that, that he gives to couples is that every couple, when meeting each other, should say, minutes after meeting, I'm crazy like this. How are you crazy? <laughs> because he said, inevitably, uh, we uh, are, are going to meet each other's crazy. And so, uh, you know, it's like you've got all these rocks in the garden. <laughs> and... You ought to just go ahead and pull them up and just see what kind of worms are under there right off the, the get-go so we can just be real honest about how we're going to fail each other and not save each other. In fact, uh, one of the things that Alain de Botton says is beautifully, uh, just, this, is just, this is beautiful philosophical craftsmanship. He says Combat- compatibility, uh, how did he put this? Compatibility is uh, not the... Uh, is compatibility is the achievement of love, not its precondition. Now, that's wise. Compatibility is not... I ought to just talk about marriage right now for the next few minutes. Compatibility is the achievement of love. It's not its precondition. It's something that we achieve together. Why? We look at each other's turned-over rocks, and we see all those bugs, and oh, gosh. But then you go, yeah, you too? Me too. You may have problems and struggles and difficulties I don't have. Your sin may not be my brand of sinning, but I've got my brand. And compatibility, I mean, it, it, what, what that philosopher says, it also fits in this passage. I mean, compatibility with God is the achievement of God's love for us and our responding in love to him. It's, it's not the precondition. All kinds of coveting. Paul says, this is my crazy, you know. I'm a coveter. I'm discontent. God gives me this, and I say, it's not enough. God takes me there, and I go, what about him over here? It's coveting. It's all coveting. It's this, it's this uh, discontentment with, with who God is and what he's done for me. Again, what Paul teaches in Romans 7, and Romans 7 is really less teaching than confessing. But what he tells us in Romans 7 is that the struggle with sin is real, even for one coming out of Romans 6 saying, I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm going to own God's ownership of me. And then you get on into living and you realize, whoa, well, I still have issues. Yes, I'm getting better in Christ. Yes, I've got resources in Christ. I've got a community of people around me to hold me accountable and to encourage me and all of it. But the draw to sin dies hard. 
especially when you're advancing in Christ because now you've got the, all the better read on your heart. Now you really know who you are. And you say, well, that's so depressing. And I say to you, no, it isn't, Mr. Religion, Mrs. Religion. It's not depressing. It's salvation. What did you think the ripping and the writhing on, on Calvary's Hill was all about? I mean, just his taking your place? It is that, absolutely. But his calling you to join him there as well. What does Romans 6, 6 say? Our old self is crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live by faith in the Son of God. life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Availing myself of his resources, that means. The old self dies hard. See, when you're told that you're more evil than you know, that you're so evil it necessitated the death of the Son of God on your behalf, when you're told you're more evil than you know, it's not to rub your face in it. It's so that you can then be told God is more gracious to you than you know. But it stands to reason for Christians that the, the closer you get to the one and only perfect person that ever was, Jesus Christ, the more clearly you see you're not perfect, not even close. Your goodness has never been good enough, and it will never be good enough. And if that makes you dispirited and discouraged and, and despairing, look up. Give your Savior your self-righteousness again and again, as well as your unrighteousness, both of which are tucked into this word wretched in verse 24. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It would seem on the surface that we are incurably self-righteous and or unrighteous. We can be both at the same time. I don't think Paul would disagree with uh, John Steinbeck where he wrote in East of Eden that we all have one story. All people have one story and it's the same story, the contest of good and evil within us. Now, that can be overplayed, that can be over-dichotomized, but in principle, Steinbeck wasn't wrong. Honest people confess this about ourselves. It feels like there's this contest within us between good and evil in each of us. We'll get into more of this next week. A lot of you have no doubt heard this. Uh, it's made the rounds around the church. I, uh, when I've heard it, it's the old Indian chief. You know, he gets converted, and he's asked what it feels like, and it feels like these, these two dogs fighting in me, and whichever one I feed the most wins. And that's a proper description, but it's a terrible prescription for what's going on in the heart. And we'll get into that next week. That's so you won't go out of town next weekend. You'll come back here. What's wrong with the Indian illustration? He's going he's to pick that apart. I am. Because feeding the white dog, as it were, just leads to a better kind of lostness. You're never called to do that. You are called to give yourself heart, soul, mind, and strength to the love of Jesus Christ for you. It's not about feeding some dog, locating some better angel in you and saying, more angel food cake for you, you know? What Paul is conveying to us in this chapter is that we have already lost the contest to evil, okay? It wasn't, you know, uh, God voted for you and Satan voted against you and you cast a deciding vote, you know? I heard that all my life growing up. It's nonsense. 
I mean, what that is, it means well. It's very well-intentioned. At probably 100 churches, it's being taught this morning. The problem is it's self-salvation. It's self-salvation. It doesn't exalt in the glory of God for us. It's all about you better get it right. You better get it in gear. You better get it straight. It doesn't work. What Paul says to us here in this chapter, we've, we've already lost the contest to evil because it, it, that's why we're set on it. <laughs> that's why we want it. That's why we like it. But he's saying to us in this chapter, if you let that drive you to despair, you'll miss the gospel in a fundamental way and you'll actually make room for the devil. You say, wait a minute, I don't see the devil here. Well, no, he's not uh, mentioned here, but that doesn't mean he's lurking. He's not lurking about here. Because I'll tell you, this dynamic, Paul is articulating our passage, Satan is very opportunistic with because he's not just a tempter. He's also an accuser and a discourager, and despair is one of his best weapons against the unrighteous and the self-righteous both. Because in the unrighteous person, the unrighteous person will despair for thinking, I can never change. And Satan says, that's right, you can never change. And God hasn't helped you very much, has he? And the self-righteous person says, uh, in despair, I should never be tempted anyway. I'm too good for temptation. And Satan goes, that's right, you are. You're better than this. How could you be tempted? Alan Jacobs, I'll complete the sermon with this. He tells a story about when he thought he needed to quit pickup basketball games. Alan Jacobs was a longtime professor at Wheaton College. This was when he was at Wheaton. He's now at Baylor. Prolific uh, writer. Uh, Jacobs, one morning at Wheaton, was playing with fellow faculty and students, and he got fouled pretty hard by a guy who then made some snarky comment to him as he brushed past him. And this unleashed from Alan Jacobs a torrent of cursing at this guy, and he took a swing at him. Ooh, yeah. That's terrible, isn't it? Alan Jacobs is uh, doing something I would never do. Oh. Yeah. Sam, thank you. Thank you for that. You're right with me. Jacobs says on reflection, after praying about it and feeling great shame over his reaction. And why do you feel great shame? Because he's a professor at Wheaton College. I'm not supposed to do this. Those words aren't supposed to come out of my mouth. My, my, my hand isn't supposed to become a fist. It's supposed to be either like this all the time or it's supposed to be like this all the time or it's supposed to be like this all the time at Wheaton College. Not like this. That's what they do at North Alabama where I went to school. <laughs> hey, you know, it's good school. He totally lost it in front of all those brothers. And so he thought and prayed, and he thought, you know what, I, I just, I can't play basketball any longer. He loved basketball. He loved those pickup games. And he needed the exercise. And, and, and then he decided, wait, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the, the proper thing here. I'm going to confess to my class. So all the students come in, and he models, he, he writes about this, I was modeling confession to them. I was showing them that a mature Christian can have these struggles. And he said, all the while, I was hoping they would realize how humble I am. <laughs> and you see how the self-righteousness now dovetails with the unrighteousness, right? He said he wanted them to see that. So he quit pick up, pick up basketball. This was his solution. But he said a student from the class came up and nervously asked him if he could meet with him later. 
And the student uh, came by, and he was an ex-con of Cuban descent. His name was Manny. And he spoke with an accent and a stutter. And he sat down, and he said, Dr. Jacobs, do you like basketball? And Jacob said, sure, I do. That's why I enjoy playing. And he goes, Dr. Jacobs, please do not make room for the devil. And Jacobs thought, well, well, this is the very thing I'm trying not to do by quitting uh, playing. Therefore, I won't give the devil a, a foothold. And, and, and this student, Manny, helped him see he got it exactly backwards. The devil capitalizes on our tendency to go despairing over ourselves. And what Manny wanted Alan Jacobs to understand is that if you give up playing pickup basketball, you're essentially saying that part of your life belongs to the devil. You're essentially saying that that part of your life is impervious to God's grace, that this is an arena in your world that God cannot win. He cannot reign Alan Jacobs in when he's on the basketball court. Do you really want to say that? Manny said, why don't you pray for a peaceable spirit and go back out there and play? And that's what Alan Jacobs did. The devil will use despair on the unrighteous and self-righteous both because the goal is for us to think ourselves incurable. And Romans 7 is here to say, you're not incurable. Romans 7 is here to say, you've been tracking along with all this doctrine, good. Now here's when you get out and try to practice it, when you try to put your life on the altar, as Romans 12 is going to say, and you keep crawling off and you keep flinching back, well, there's a reason for that because you're more evil than you know. And grace is even greater than you know. And you're told you're more evil than you know so that you can be told grace is greater than you know. If this chapter ended on verse 24, then by all means, go to despairing over yourself. But it doesn't end on verse 24. The chapter ends on verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the dynamic. This is why I say when being good isn't good enough, don't despair. Again, we're taking two weeks in this passage. We never get to everything in one sermon. We never get to everything in two sermons or a whole series. Even There's a lot here. But the end of verse 25 here summarizes the deep tension that we struggle with, and that is the struggle is real. There is this contest in us. It feels like it. Christ is in ownership of me. I know the good I should do. I have the want to, thanks to Jesus. But, oh, man, why do I still find myself drawn to what is not good and resisting what I should give myself to or just failing it? And when that happens, when I don't give myself to what I know better, taught by God, when I'm not unfailingly obedient to Him as I want to be and wish I was, if I despair over that, it points to my self-righteousness, actually. Because what I'm saying is, God can't get me. What I'm saying is, uh, in this area of our life, it's complete and utter defeat, and the, the merits and the victory of Christ don't apply here. And we shouldn't say that. If I despair over not being good enough for God, I miss the gospel that says to me, hey, Cole, that's the very point, man. There's only one who's good enough. There's only one who is utterly and always pleasing to God every moment of time. I miss the gospel even when I know it. Because if I despair over myself, I'd misplace it. I've been delivered from my inheritance to Adam to another inheritance of grace and glory in Jesus. Who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Stand with me, let's pray. We're going to sing a bar.
of that uh, last song that we sang, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So pray with me and then let's sing and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are the one righteous one who went before us, who goes with us, and who will be there for us at the end. Thank you that you do all things well. And we uh, ask you for help. Uh, when we feel that draw most intensely and we want to go there where our sin would take us, Lord, um, help us to draw near, help us to draw to resources that you've given us, to those things not to lie fallow and, and for us to, to miss them, but for us to not miss the gospel ongoing in our lives. It's not just a point of departure from our old life and our beliefs it gets into our practices. When those rocks are overturned and we are exposed, when we are seen to be who we really are, but even when we're not, and we know in the quiet of our hearts, not all is well there. Whether anybody sees that or not, Lord, you do, and you still welcome us and you still bring us. Thank you for being our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.